Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Homelands Adventure Podcast. Welcome back to the Homelands Adventure podcast, where we're delighted to be joined today in conversation for our final episode of the first season, uh, Mr. Cody Townsend, professional skier, adventurer and entrepreneur. How are we doing, Cody? Ah, doing good this morning. Just, uh, yeah, as I was saying before, sitting in the smoke of California, which isn't, which isn't the greatest. Uh, no, 2020 has definitely been um, a strange time. Um, what's yeah. 2020 been like for Cody Townsend in your world? Um, what well, started off pretty good. Um, we had a decent snow year. Um, the pretty much beginning of the season was going super well all the way up until actually my birthday, which was March 14th. And that was like the last day I skied at the resort. I was preparing to pretty much leave Tahoe for the rest of the spring. I'd just come home from a bit of travel and was like resetting all my gear, repacking, getting ready for expeditions through, through March through into June. And, uh, I, almost like literally was driving out the door when it was the everything was hitting the fan and realized it was like I don't think I should go anywhere right now and then yeah I didn't go anywhere and really haven't gone anywhere since just like like the rest of the world we've all had to shelve our plans but yeah let's go and back into some more positive things and we'll we'll just start with um where you grew up you were born and raised in Santa Cruz which is obviously famous surf town. Um, when did skiing first enter your life? Um, skiing entered my life when I was like about two years old. Um, I actually, my parents, um, loved skiing and they, my dad was a surfer, but, and my mom skied, my dad skied and they just kind of, it was like a fun thing to do on the weekends. And we had this little cabin and by like little cabin, it's like a legit cabin, like fire uh, a stove wood fired stove is the only thing that heats it you had to we had to hike to it in the winter it was like a quarter mile hike to get to it um like it was not just like a second home it was a sixty thousand dollar forest service cabin (laughs) and so um we would go up there on the weekends and i started skiing when i was two years old and fell in love with it right away um i don't know how or why but i was just absolutely hooked from the, the youngest of age like so even despite growing up in yeah a internationally famous surf town and skate town and mountain biking town i fell in love with the mountains and the snow from the pretty much earliest of age and i believe that your dad was a football coach as well and the family were big into american football how did you balance kind of the skiing with the other sports that you mentioned there and um and and did you did your dad have any ideas and vision for you um going into uh football as a sport yeah, no, my, yeah, my dad, as you said, he was, uh, he was like a college football player and he was a uh, football coach pretty much his whole life. 
I think he's kind of still coaching, even though he's been retired from his main job as a teacher. And um, I knew from the youngest of age that I was going to be playing football. And I wanted to. I kind of grew up on a football field. I would go to practices as a kid and watch um, pretty much some future NFL stars play and was a ball boy and uh, just was around it my whole life. Um, But in the meantime, I was falling in love with skiing from even a younger age before I could play football. And um, I don't know. It was just, I did all sports. I played soccer, um, baseball, football, just was kind of into it all. But skiing always still kind of took a priority in my mind. And football is a fall sport, so it didn't get into in way of actual like uh, training for skiing or anything. So, but as soon as the football season ended, it was like full gas. All I could think about was was skiing. And I don't know, even when I was playing football, all I could think about was skiing. (laughs) And uh, you moved to Tahoe at 16, I believe. What was mm-hmm. that like? I mean, were you, was that totally by yourself or were you, were you, did you have family and friends that you were connected to when you were there? And how, how important was that for you to make that move at that time? Yeah, it was, it was really important because I mean, I was like, I was saying, I was so obsessed with skiing and, uh, I was doing pretty well at ski racing. Um, there was a year, I think when I was like 14 or 15, I remember I won almost every single race in this, like kind of, uh, the far West region and USSA region, just kind of like all the like local young races. And I was winning every single race out there yet. I was only skiing on the weekends and I wasn't training at all. I would actually just drive up from Santa Cruz from the weekends, which was about a five hour drive. Um, well, my parents would drive and I would sit in the back and I would go to a ski race, win the race and then drive home and then not ski through the rest of the week. So I kind of uh, had tried to convince my parents like, Hey, I could do pretty good at this and be on the Olympic path and the U S ski team path. If I just get a little bit more time to actual train. So, um, my sophomore year of high school, transferred high schools from Santa Cruz up to Tahoe and actually just lived um, on a cot at my best friend's house, George Jelty, and we lived together. So my parents didn't move up. I lived with their family and uh, pretty much finally got to achieve my dream of skiing every single day. And it, it it's funny because it kind of warped me in the wrong way, I would say. Like I was definitely skiing and ski race training, but at the same time, George was kind of moving out of ski racing and was starting to get ingrained with a lot of the free ski crew being like JT Holmes and Shane McConkie and Scott Gaffney and all the local squad legends that were, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, just ruling the world in the sport of skiing. They were all my back door. And so I started kind of skiing with those guys a little bit more and ditching training. (laughs) And uh, I'd say it warped me into really wanting to find the path of being a free skier as opposed to a racer. Um, I kind of kept with racing just because I was doing good at it. Um, I was still decent enough and on the US ski team path and doing, you know, training camps with US team and kind of going that way. And I just stayed good enough where I was like, okay, I could keep doing this, but definitely my mind started to wander into, into free skiing a bit more. Was there a defining moment or conversation where you made the switch? No, I tried to switch actually when I was uh, 16. Um, I think that was that sophomore year, maybe that, maybe my junior year of high school. Um, I actually told my mom I was going to quit ski racing and I, I was done and I didn't want to do it anymore. And I was just burnt out by it. And then she convinced me just to give one last race a go. And that was the junior Olympics. Um, 
And I, so I went to junior Olympics and I ended up winning the downhill. So it kind of kept me going. And she was like, all right, are you going to keep going? I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. I just won junior Olympics, which was our biggest race of the year. Um, and then I went up to another race then beat like half the U S ski team being at like 16 years old. So it was kind of like, well, I guess I'll keep going with this. So there wasn't almost like one defined moment. Cause I'd already tried to quit to be a free skier and then kept going all the way until I was about 20 years old. So it was more just like on in between training, I was getting to ski with Shane and Kent Kreitler and Tom ways and Gaffney JT and just all the squad crew. And it was really kind of getting coming under their tutelage and then being able to and I would race on the weekends and ski with them during midweek. And then my mind was kind of just scattered. I just want, I was like, I'm having more fun with them, but I'm doing well enough in ski racing. So I'm just going to keep going. And it wasn't until I was about 20 when I just realized I was like, you know what, this is costing my parents too much money because being a ski racer is incredibly expensive. I knew my heart wasn't in it. Um, I remember one particular day I did a race and I, um, I, did so well in this race better than I'd ever done in that discipline before. And yet I got home and I was just like, I'm not happier. I'm not having more fun. And I'm sitting there by myself in this room. You're like, cool. You're like, you did really well. And all your coaches are fired up, but I'm like, not, I'm not feeling it. So it was, maybe it was that moment that I realized it was like, this isn't for me, but it still took me another couple of years to kind of quit after that. And that was when I actually just asked Solomon, who was my um, ski sponsor for ski racing at a ski race at the end of it. I think I had a poor result and I just asked him, I was like, can I be a free skier for you guys? And they were like, yeah, for sure. And I was like, yes, let's do this. (laughs) Moving at 16. um, I think, probably most of us at that age think that we've got life figured out, but it's only when you get a bit older and you look back, you realize that, you know, absolutely nothing. Yeah. (laughs) How hard was it to stay disciplined at that age to be within that race circuit? Is it, is it a case of, you know, everything's so well drilled and so well programmed, or did you have to find that you, you know, maybe missed out on a few other things in life or were there temptations at 16 to, you know, go a bit wild and go a bit crazy being in a ski town and, um, how did you manage, I guess, that, that personal life with those kind of maybe professional goals and ambitions that you had at racing when you first moved there? I would say I did not manage it well. I would say I was the, I was the crazy kid. I was the one that was doing all the wild, stupid crap and getting in trouble and um, just doing things. I don't know why, just like I was pretty wild. I was not focused on like, of course I wanted to do well at ski racing, but in the in-between I was just like, so wound up by like skiing and just being, uh, I don't know, on these trips and in new mountain towns that I was just go kind of crazy. So yeah, I did a lot of dumb stuff when I was at ski races. Um, uh, but I think what it all came down to, I was, I was still, incredibly in love with skiing and it was my only focus so everything went that way might not have went the way in terms of like performance in ski racing but everything was like i was skiing from sun up to sundown every day like there was no time off for me um i would be the one that was after the ski race i would go free ski the mountain when everyone all everyone else kind of went home and got rested up for the next day um i would be up earlier than everyone trying to get and go free skiing before the the race itself like one of my favorite actually stories i had was we were at u.s nationals 
and we were up in Montana and it snowed maybe like we always joke around if you want snow schedule a downhill race so it snowed like I don't know probably like 18 inches 24 inches overnight it was a huge powder day at Big Mountain which is Whitefish Mountain up in Montana and so we were on the chairlifts about 7 a.m. and the whole ski race of the U.S. ski team had to go slip the course and go pack it out and try and uh, like pretty much just sidestep down the mountain to try and prepare it for a race. Well, I was a, the kid on the team that would bring fat skis instead of like training skis to GS races. So, um, yeah, my coaches didn't really like me that much. And um, we would we were getting early ups to go up and slip out the race. So except for I wasn't slipping out the races. I had fat skis. And so I would go up the chair and then go to the head of the race course and then just dip off. And I would just ski pow. And uh, I was coming down. I'd like, God, I just remember just like face shots the whole way down, just seeing pow, pow solo down a uh, big mountain. And I like ski back into line. And I remember the first time I came back into line, none of the ski racers are there. They're all slipping out. And I'm covered in powder and a few people are starting to line up for, to, for chair opening. And they're like, Hey, like he can't be on. I'm like, I show my bib. I'm like, no, no, I'm a ski racer. I just got to go slip the course. And then I went and did it again. And then by that point there was like 20, 30 people in line and they start yelling at me like, no, no, he's just skiing pal. Cause I'm just covered in pal. And it's like, no, 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 I'm, 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 racing the course like I gotta prep the course and I'm on fat skis and like baggy clothes I definitely don't look like a ski racer and then third lap I get in I'm just like laughing like I've got my own private ski area skiing like knee-deep pal by myself uh, by the fourth lap there's probably like 150 people in, in line and they had caught wind of finally what I was doing and that no other ski racers were coming through. And it was just me <laughs> just covered in pow. And uh, the entire lineup had prepared snowballs to throw snowballs at me in disgust of me snipe, sniping all their pow. And I remember being the spiteful little kid I was. I gave them the finger and told them all to go F themselves. And I've been skiing their pow all morning. So, yeah, that, that's kind of representative of how I acted when I was a, a ski racer in 16. Like, definitely obsessed with skiing all i wanted to do but um i was definitely not a rule abider and would kind of uh just do wild stupid stuff and do you remember how you did in the actual race as well mm, i did pretty well yeah i think i did well i actually did i mean i did the best in ski racing when i was relaxed when i was focused um when i was over competitive so when i would do well when i was super relaxed i would do well um you know i wasn't like a disciplined ski racer but i knew how to go fast and so i would do well when i was really relaxed i think i did pretty well in that race um i, I did well just well enough to kind of keep going but never quite put the effort in to make that next step and i think it was for there's for a reason you know my mind wasn't in it i don't know no, if I would have made the U.S. ski team in the Olympics, if I would have put in the effort that was necessary or just burn out and been bitter and uh, lost prime years of free skiing. So it was just the way that I kind of went. It, it definitely feels like most free skiers gateway into free skiing is from having a race background and uh, a bit of a foundation there. Um, I wonder when you look back now, um, over your career in free skiing, if there's something, maybe some advice or something that maybe the coaches on the race side told you 
at the time when you were a teenager, which you maybe didn't perhaps take too much notice of at that time that you now look back upon that's helped you within your actual free skiing career in itself? Well, I think what's helped me a lot is just the, the technique that you learn in racing. It, it teaches you a good turn, a foundational turn. And it's not necessarily it's a good turn. It's something that looks good on camera, but it's like powerful and it gets you, um, it keeps you on top of your skis when you're hauling ass down on Alaskan peak and all of a sudden the snow gets variable and you're skipping over, uh, over cliffs and just bouncing through Abbey debris and all that stuff. It's what keeps you together. And, um, that, that kind of foundation of how to actually ski, what is like the a foundationally strong turn and how to control your speed and how to maneuver in all sorts of situations, I think is absolutely essential for being a professional free skier. You know, um, when it comes to like actual lessons that I was taught by coaches, I would say the number one thing was being at Squaw. Um, Squaw Valley is, it's funny because it's renowned as a free skiing mountain, but it actually is the single most successful ski racing program in the U S and in the U S we have like park city academies. We have all kinds of these back East race academies, all these things that are so focused on racing yet squaw has more people put on the U S ski team than any single ski resort in and ski team in the country. And I think the reason why, and the coaches will tell you this is because of KT 22 and because of their focus on just being a skier, not necessarily um, focused on drills and techniques technique and whatnot we would go ski with our coaches sure we would train in the morning but we would go ski the mountain and you learn how to become a good skier um, instead of a good ski racer and there's something to be said for that and I think it was really really essential and 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 learning how to be a skier and almost adapting to our environments like we didn't train if there if the snow was soft like why would you whereas in like let's say an academy and like back east the snow's soft well they'll they're going to slip it out and prepare the course so it's a bit harder for us you're like no let's just go ski and you learn to adapt to every sort of environment and you know you see why so many ski racers gold medalists all and especially downhill racers come out of squat because they're good skiers something that I notice a lot with, with ski races is standing in the gates and that visualization before the run, you can almost see them on the kind of the TV cameras moving and weaving and seeing the line so that they, they know their turns obviously in advance before they, they commit to the course. How much of that transcends and carries over into the free skiing side of things and how much positive visualization do you kind of go through before you commit to um, descending a line? Oh, um, I was pretty much essential for it. You know, when it comes to downhill racing, you're memorizing every single turn and uh, the line over and over and over. And when it comes to um, backcountry skiing and big mountain skiing and skiing in Alaska and whatnot, it's almost more essential because as you know, what we're doing is like, yeah, when you inspect a course, you can memorize it really well, but we don't get to inspect like a spine line in Alaska with a 60 foot uh, cliff. You're only inspecting it from the bottom below. And so I would use my visualization techniques to kind of be at the bottom and try to imagine what it looks like um, when it's flipped 
the other way and backwards and then is blind. And so you have to kind of start to see little details like, oh, that little kind of rock right there. What's that going to look like when I'm approaching it from the top? You're like, well, it's going to only look like a little bit of a snowy spine, but that's your mark. And starting to like think like that was really, really key. And I think is really essential for learning how to ski big mountains. And so for line visualization, I find it even more important when it comes to big mountain skiing than even ski racing. So I think that technique was, was really essential. Um, the other thing that was actually kind of weirdly essential for, for my free ski career that came from ski racing was, was actually training and physical training and dry land training. I didn't, didn't necessarily commit myself when it came to ski racing because it was such a, I think my passion wasn't there. But as soon as I kind of quit and went into free skiing, I think my drive to be a, a pro skier and, and to um, be good at it was so strong that I worked my my tail off in the off season. Like I was in the gym all the time. I was like going to trampolines. I was like trying to work on it really hard and use the techniques I learned from, from ski racing to apply into free skiing. Um, so I think the, those lessons that I learned, even though, you know, we kind of got burned out by free skiing, were still really, really, or by ski racing, were still really essential for free skiing. I've heard you talk in the past about one of your kind of big breaks was in 2005 when you were uh, recruited by uh, Matchstick Productions, who we do a lot of work with here in the UK, and um, and you were uh, to feature in one of their films and you skied with them for pretty much most of the winter. But um, when it came to the actual edit, you perhaps weren't in it as much as maybe you you've been um, filmed. And how much of a disappointment was that? And then how do you go from perhaps um, maybe not having the best of seasons to then becoming one of their go-to athletes. Yeah. So I would say, you know, being in a matchstick film was actually like my Olympics. That was what I wanted to be. Like my, I was obsessed with, with, Shane McConkey with, with their films. It was the first films I'd, I'd watch and was just like, I would study them like every night. I would, I remember watching six cents, um, at minimum two times every day for an entire summer. And so getting that opportunity was huge. Um, but I didn't know that I wasn't quite ready. And I was 20 years old. I had just transferred out of, um, out of ski racing and could ski squaw pretty well. I knew that place like the back of my hand. I could jump off all the cliffs. I could do all the lines that what pros were doing. And I think it gave me like a definite false sense of confidence that I could be there. So, but uh, when I got kind of the call to get it, I was like, sweet, I'm ready. And then it's a whole different game when you are trying to free ski on film. And one, you until you see yourself ski, it's really hard to know what actually you're doing if you're waving your arms in the air uh, being very cognizant of your style and how you're making turns and how you're jumping off cliffs and and so i i did not ski well enough that year um i skied like crap pretty much the entire year i had a couple little highlights but for the most part i, I wasn't ready and um i ended up yeah not being in the film at all. They put me in kind of this like bonus film and I was pretty crushed. Um, I would say like, I, you know, when you think you're on this path and you think you, you get this opportunity and you blow that opportunity, I was, I was very, very crushed. I remember going home from the film premiere crying and it was like, wow, I don't think I'm going to be a professional free skier, but the next year rolled around and I was like, well, what else am I going to do? Like, 
do I just go get a normal job now? Cause I think this is over. You're like, well, no, I, I love skiing. It's the only thing I know how to do. And I'm only 21 years old. So, um, that was the year I started, I joined the free ride world tour the year that that started, um, and started to do some other little kind of side filming and, you know, spent the next, it was actually five years between, uh, 2005 when I filmed the matchstick to when I got my second invitation and, um, that second invitation was crucial and it was absolutely, by that point I was very, very ready and I knew I was ready, but I also knew there's a lot of pressure. I knew it was like, I remember we were in Alaska with Henrik Winstead. Um, I filled in for Mark Abma who had gotten hurt and, uh, I knew I got this opportunity and I remember taking off in the helicopter day one and like kind of getting this like uh, feeling where you're like, this is your chance. And if you blow this, your career, everything is done. So do what you got to do. And, uh, it was definitely a bit of, a bit of pressure I put on myself, but that, that trip went fabulously well. We had the best conditions possible and still to this day was my best Alaska trip I've ever had. And I did well enough to be invited back and become a regular on the matchstick crew. And uh, I think probably a lot of people outside of skiing will know you for, uh, winning the line of the year. Um, and, uh, and skiing um, the crack, which was an in insane line. Um, how do you prepare for something like that? And presumably that is a, a one and done, you know, uh, or is it something that you would ever, would you ever return to ski that again? Mm, I wouldn't return to ski like I did. Um, no, it was, a, it was a one and done. And yeah, I think that was kind of a lifetime of preparation. Um, you know, here at Squaw, we have actually a lot of little straight lines for um, little short versions of just of the crack um you know i would say they're 100 feet long to 500 feet long at most but we have all these little mini straight lines and you know squaw has a ton of creative lines so when i was young i remember always liking to do those ones and we go seek them out and go find these little technical straight lines through shoots where you couldn't make a turn and then also being a downhill ski racer very comfortable with speed i loved speed actually you know going 60 to 90 miles an hour was something that I loved to do and tried to do. And so as I got older into my free ski career and started to find like coulars and ski cup coulars a couple times and ski them fast, I realized it was like, whoa, if you can find like or the like the Alaska version uh, of the straight lines and squat, like that would be insane. And so I'd always had it in my mind. And I knew that my strengths as a skier would lend itself to going really fast through a narrow couloir, just being that I had a strong turn, a secure turn, could handle speed well, and had kind of had some experience with that sort of thing. So when it came to the crack itself, like finding it was just like uh, an unbelievable, like thing in itself because it's just such a magnificent feature like i've never seen anything like that in our world like i don't there's maybe one other thing like i could see like one other place in the world something like that exists but i also could see that being truly one of a kind like a perfect crack through the top of a mountain filled with snow that's skiable like I'm, there's nothing quite like that and and even go into a full tube the fact that it was like closed off at one place and um you know when it came and finding it after that yeah like i just knew like i visualized it scoped it just thought about it dreamed about it and just knew that i was like yeah this is something i can do and i don't know how many other people could do because this is this is what you've been working for 
And we spoke to Ian McIntosh for a previous episode, and we talked to him about when uh, he had a had a big crash when he was um, on a on a ski film shoot, and that went viral, and that gave him all sorts of media attention, which he said was one of the worst things that had happened in his career. When you ski the crack, and that 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 video is going viral, what sort of a change happens in your life with all the attention that that brings? Yeah. So there's two things that kind of happen to it. And I, I agree with, um, with Macintosh going viral actually sucks. Um, I would not say that there's many good things that come out of it. Um, you know, I would look at like, like comments every once in a while and you'd like, like the number one comment on Facebook was something about people like me need to die because they're, um, someone's son acted like me and watched people like me and had killed himself doing some something crazy. And you're like, what are, are you serious? And you would see all these like really negative comments about something that was very, very positive. And it was just, and of course the way that social media and algorithms work, those get bumped to the absolute top. And so you see the worst of the worst right at the top. Um, and like, and the attention that it comes from the major media, you're kind of like, it just feels weird. You, you're talking to people like in Good Morning America and these morning TV shows that they don't understand skiing. They don't know what's going on. And they're like, you're trying to, they're saying dumb stuff. And you're just kind of like, eh, kind of don't really want to talk to you about this because you just don't even understand it. Um, it's like when it came to like the, the massive attention, like, it just felt like a novelty in a certain way. It didn't feel very real. What was, what was cool to me was when your, your peers and when the ski industry celebrated it, that was what was special to me. Like when you'd have friends like Macintosh be like, that was rad, buddy. Like a guy I look up to is telling me that's rad. You're like, that was so much more powerful to me than being on ESPN and getting like a million views and whatnot. What it just, I don't know. The peer respect is something that I think is something we is much more powerful than being popular because as, as Ian saw from going viral, it's just really negative stuff can come out of it. And it really does kind of suck. And I don't know, I I don't want to go viral again. It's not even for something as positive as the, as the crack was, it's not really something that's that great. Um, But personally in a career way, it's like, yeah, it, it helped me. It helped me a lot. Like I think it put me as this guy that was like a regular in matchsticks and was like always there to like, Oh, you're, you're a level now you're top of the, you know, top of the heap and whatnot. So um, it did help me. You know, I just got, I think a little more respect from some of the sponsors and from the industry people and just kind of showed that I was here and here to stay um, in a certain way. So um, it did, it changed my life in different in ways and ways I didn't see possible um, and not all of them for the better, but in certain ways, yeah, there was certain things that was for, for the better. I know when, when you watch the segment, you know, you, you're quite, you're verbally like absolutely pumped as you could understandably would be having um, committed to something like that. And then when that negativity creeps in, I know that there was something in the press about um, Travis Rice having been in uh, and in the same line and trying to position his story about skiers versus snowboarders. And did that take away from that enjoyment of the moment and that sense of accomplishment that you felt when you completed the line? No, not at all. <laughs> like it was just like, I still always sit back to like, there's two things I associate with like, um, 
just being incredibly happy about that. And both of them have nothing to do with being viral and all the media attention that came with it. One was the the night before uh, or the night after it. I remember, I will never forget that moment of getting home and just like, and we watched it on film and I just watched it and was like, I was the first time in my life I was blown away by seeing a shot of myself was like, holy, that, that was, that was bananas. Like that's me in there. Like that looked crazy. And then just like, I remember it was like midnight and, um, you know, the sun is still kind of, it's still kind of light out a little bit in, uh, in Alaska, but like there was this blood moon rising and I just, I was still in my ski clothes and I just sat out in the snow outside of my, uh, backcountry cabin and just sat there for like an hour and just like kind of took it all in. Cause I realized at that point, I was like, that was my dream. That was something I've been working for for a long time to do something like that. And that moment of just kind of like pure contentment, it was like, it was really powerful. And I like that feeling you have is, is something that I will never forget. And then this, the second moment was, was like winning powder awards, winning the awards for it, because it was, again, it was that pure respect. It was something that you know, when you win those awards, you're on the, the level of, of your heroes. And I never feel like I'm on the level of my heroes, but it was for a moment was like, Hey, I, I, I'm sharing the stage with some of the people I really, really look up to. So when the media attention, when it came to like Travis, who we found out after um, because it was dead secret and their whole movie project was pretty secret at that point that he had done it before me, um, probably a month or so before me. And I had no idea about that. Um, that was definitely weird, but it really didn't bother me, especially when the fact when Travis like reached out to me and it was just like, hey, like the media is trying to pit us against each other. Let's make this like, let's bury this right now. And it was to me, it was just like, I respect Travis in numerous ways, but from that moment was even more respect for this guy because he's just like, he's a, he's a skier, he's a snowboarder. He's like one of us and is not out there to try and be something big or famous or try and seek the media attention no no. like he's at its core just is a mountain guy and he could the fact that we like got to share that was more important to him than necessarily getting the attention that oh he did it first and um you know that but my video came out and my video went viral and stuff like that he he was not trying to take anything away from it so for that yeah, that was what the cool part was the the media pitting against each other, and it wasn't the media; it was just a couple of snowboard magazines that were trying to do the skier versus snowboarder thing. Was kind of just eh, it's whatever, trying to make a story. I get it. You mentioned awards there. I wonder how much of a motivator are awards, or have they been in your career so far? And is it something that you you look to and think, okay, I've got my eye on this particular award this season? You're you're really aiming for it and gunning for it, or is it just something that comes as uh, as something supplementary to you know the enjoyment of the sport in itself? Yeah, I would say like in the moment. Um, in the mountain, when you're dropping in, you're never thinking about awards. There's far more things to think about, including being successful on that line and coming away with it um, in in one piece. But I, what I would say for for myself, like yeah, I go to the awards, and if it, they're, you know, they'll they'll fire me up to like okay, train and focus for this season. You know, like you kind of like yeah, like I want to I want to be up there. I want to uh, be part of this and I, I remember this was mainly when I was younger and it would just like kind of set your mindset to just kind of be like all right like you're focusing on the season and yeah train hard and really focus uh, 
every little ounce that it comes into when you're filming. Cause when it comes down to it, when you're filming, you only have like six or seven days that make an entire ski film. And so when those days come, you have to be as mentally and physically prepared as you possibly can be. And so to do that, that takes all the time beforehand, whether that's training, whether that's visualization, whether that's just skiing your, your, your butt off before then to be really confident and feel good on your skis so that the day of you can perform well and land your land the things that you didn't think you were going to be able to land and and go for the the lines and tricks you didn't think you were going to be able to go for but being there and being prepared for that so you know it's like a it's a weird motivation um and it's probably the competitive fire that kind of lives in all of us um Every professional athlete, no matter how humble or um, lack of ego they have, are competitive. That is one thing I've found. And you, 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 we, it shows in different ways, but we will always kind of you get that little fire and you want to go for it. And that's it's make, makes it pretty fun. I like that part of it. I, I guess with anyone, as, a, as a, you know, your career, career progresses and, uh, and your profile elevates, different opportunities come. And one of the opportunities I wanted to ask you about was how did you get to be the body double for Vin Diesel in Triple X? Yeah, um, I'm not entirely sure, but what happened was the the movie producers went and I guess they scoured the internet to look for viral films of action sports. I, I, I can just picture like people in Hollywood Googling action sports, viral films or something like that. And they saw Sweetgrass's production of in Valhalla when they were skiing in the forest and it didn't look like there was any snow. And then they got the idea to like, Hey, let's do that for our movie and make Vin Diesel triple X Xander cage ski where there's no snow, but let's do it in the Dominican Republic where they're, where it's a lot different to, to build a little bit of snow and slide on than where Sweetgrass filmed it up in Mount Baker. Um, so they actually called Sweetgrass Productions to do the kind of consulting on it and kind of do some cable cam work on it. And then Sweetgrass called me. They, they called me out of the blue and I'm not entirely sure why they called me still to this day, but they called me and I was like, yes. For sure. I'm definitely doing that. And so, uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. I mean, I kind of always, that was definitely a, um, a check on the, the bucket list of being able to be a stunt double in a Hollywood film. You know, it's a, it's kind of a cool, unique thing and see behind the scenes of how these Hollywood films are made. It was, it was a really cool experience. And how different is it? to filming with a ski film production crew um what are the what were the biggest um points of difference that you noticed oh uh, god it's not even it's not even in the same ballpark i mean like we they would laugh at the what we produce off of nothing we have one cinematographer if we're lucky two maybe a drone and make these amazing ski films that are shot beautifully and edited amazingly and just are highly entertaining and it's just a camera guy and that's it and uh there they have hundreds and hundreds of people on set and multiple you know there's so many producers and directors just pulling every little string and the biggest thing i noticed out of the kind of attitude of everyone there is everyone's there just to make money they don't care about the film there's like two people that care about the film and it's maybe the, some of the producers that are funding it and the director, everyone else 
could give a flying F about it. Like you'd be in there and you could talk to people that are doing your hair and makeup and all they're talking about is how to milk the clock to get overtime for this shoot and how dumb the producers are. And they just, they don't care about the movie. The cameraman, they don't care about the movie. Nobody cares about the movie. They're there just to get paid. And then the kind of, you can tell it kind of shows a little bit too. Like we were kind of skiing a dry slope being like carving out runs in the in the jungle and whatnot and we'd have these um these cameramen trying to like hike into position and like hike into position is walk up a sort of steep hill for 45 feet and they'd be like whining and complaining to one point i just i grabbed one of the camera guys cameras off it threw it on my shoulder with my skis on the other and just walked it up for him and because he kept falling and was like whining about having to hike and you're like you guys are such wussies you should it was like kind of just wanting to it was laughing at everything that was going on um it was it was interesting kind of to see that they their movies were not driven by passion they're they're driven by money where ours movies are definitely driven by passion and not very much money and are there any other like random opportunities that have been presented to you that perhaps we wouldn't know about because you didn't necessarily take them up that you thought that's a bit too left field for me to get involved with any any of those sorts of stories that you might be willing to share Ooh, yeah i don't know it'd be actually hard to think out of out of out of the top of my head there's probably some oh yeah i've gotten asked to do some modeling gigs in the past when i was younger i definitely was like yeah it's a little little too weird for me um i've definitely i've had some reality tv show offers that i was definitely said no to so those are some of the the ones like i think there's my line is reality tv and modeling those are two things i'm not gonna do well there's still a still a whole life after free skiing which you know may yeah. may open up some <laughs> get pretty um, old i don't know <laughs> if they want to see old guys doing that kind of stuff anymore um another, another thing that i've heard you say before is that uh, you've become quite ski town famous um <laughs> I wonder if there's any times where you've been outside of a resort environment where you've been recognized and been completely caught off guard. Yes, a few times. It's been actually kind of weird lately. It's been, I think this project that I'm doing now, the 50 has kind of reached a certain level of, of popularity because it's kind of like, I don't know, I can't go through an airport without being recognized anymore, which is really weird. Um, I just still find it strange because I'm like, I'm just a skier. Like, how are people recognizing me? Um, but when it comes to um, other sorts of like, like you're saying like the ski town famous thing and oh, that was the story. Sorry, I was getting sidetracked there. Um, there is a story that I think was the most kind of out of left field that ever happened was, um, so I was in Maui where I got married in 2011. And the day after my wedding, um, we went to sushi with some friends that like two friends that were just like, hey, we just want to take you out to dinner, get away from everything. And it's just like madness and have a quiet dinner and whatnot. We're like, that sounds amazing. So we went out to dinner with two friends to this really nice sushi restaurant. We're in Maui and it's like pretty fancy place and it's like quiet and like, I don't know, just nice fancy sushi restaurant. And we're sitting down and like, finally it kind of feels like from the chaos of the week, like relaxing. And someone stands up across the room and I like look up and this guy goes like, Hey, are you Cody Townsend? 
I can't believe you're a pro. I'm way better than you. And he's yelling it across like 20 tables across this entire fancy sushi restaurant in Maui. And the whole place goes dead silent as this guy gives to this day the best pro call out I've ever seen. And everyone's just like, what the hell was that? And it was, uh, that, was that was the best pro call out of the best out of left field I've ever had. It was like just completely taken aback by that. It was, that was a good one. We chatted with Scott Gaffney about this as well, about the best pro uh, skier call out that he's ever heard. And his answer was uh, Kobe West had uh, just um, done terribly in a competition. He was really down and, and uh, this little kid kind of popped his head through the tent where he was kind of sitting, you know, gathering his thoughts and was like, hey, look, Kobe West, and you're a pro skier and I'm so much better than you. And he's like, at this moment of absolute despair. And uh, <laughs> this little kid just came and, came and completely made it worse for him. Uh, yeah, but, totally. Uh, no, yeah. they they have a good way of humbling themselves. I like the creative <laughs> ones. There's some there's some people that do some creative ones. It's all about timing. I get a lot of like social media comments. Be like, sorry, doesn't it doesn't fly? Nor is it that creative. You got to be creative with it. Like the, the guy that called me out in the sushi restaurant in Maui, mad props too. That was un, <laughs> that was unreal. And I like it takes guts to do that. And I really respect that. <laughs> And you just touched upon the 50 projects, which was a perfect segue because that was my next question. Um, tell us a little bit more about the 50 and um, how it all came about. Well, um, it came about because of the crack. And I think I've kind of told a little bit about this, but, you know, when it came to kind of my focus as a skier and my dreams and what I wanted to do, like uh, the skiing something like the crack was kind of a dream of mine for quite a long time. And, you know, after I did that and after every all the success, you know, people kept asking me, what's next? What's next? What are you going to do next? And, you know, a lot of what we do as professional athletes in the action sports realm is, is, um, completely contingent on progression your success is being one-upping the bar showing the next level and at that point after the crack I was like I don't really have much more I want to do I felt like I'd kind of topped out what I wanted to be able to do as a skier of skiing lines in Alaska backflipping off big cliffs and yeah there was more I could do and there's more progression within the sport and that aspect of the sport but I didn't feel like I was there for that and I didn't want to do much more with it um I also looked at you know there's another line I know about that's not as beautiful as a crack, but it's about twice as gnarly as the crack. It was actually one I've been scouting for years prior to even finding the crack. And I also knew that I was like, man, like I could see myself over the next couple of years trying to go down this path and continue to one up myself. There's all kinds of attention, but then the attention is going to fade and I can feel myself being drawn back to that line and being like, okay, try to do that again and try and like, you know, this is the next step up this is the progression from the crack but i also knew that line like uh it's got a low probability of success and a high probability of of fatality like it is if you mess up at all you are going to die and it's like it, the, the it would be what like the thinnest line you could possibly have in skiing and i just knew i was like i don't want to do that I, i've had too many friends too many heroes i've lost in the sport and so i really kind of took a step back and i was like well what do, what do i want to do next and at that point i didn't i had no idea 
Um, but I knew I wanted to do something a little bit more on my own. I wanted to do something outside of the the parameters of guides and helicopters. And I kind of wanted to do some more like exploration and adventure. And um, there's some films that really inspired me. Dan, uh, Dave Treadway's uh, Let's Go Get Small, um, where they take snowmobiles, a hundred 50 miles out deep into the backcountry camp and climb big lines. I remember just thinking, I was like, that, that looks amazing. I want to do something like that. And started to set myself on a path like that. And I, and I did a trip with Dave and Chris Rubens like that the very next year um, and made a little movie called Conquering the Useless out of it. And it was about kind of trying to find a, a new way. And I slowly kind of started to experiment with more, more, um, human powered missions with more exploratory missions with without using helicopters and you know starting to move away from snowmobiles just not for any other reason that it was kind of interesting uh, to me and from there is when I really started to realize I was like okay what do you what do you like in skiing right now and where do you want to do, do this and I was like I like still like doing big scary lines but I like to hike for them. And I really like the, like the expedition and the exploratory aspect. I like the mental game and the planning of ski mountaineering. I really, I really was drawn to that, the work that goes into skiing one line over the course of one week or one year or 10 years, as opposed to kind of the, the hit tons of lines out of a helicopter really quick. And so it started to kind of all wrap in and that was, the the 50 developed out of that because I, my mind was drawn that way and then looking at that book was just it was a simple thing of being like wait i, I want to ski a lot of these lines one, one day so why don't i just try and ski all of them and uh spent a couple of years with that in my mind and then committed to it in 2019 and uh and so the episodes are currently on your youtube channel and um uh, some bonus material in there as well, but in terms of the uh, the peaks that you've reached, you're at number 27, I believe, right now. Out of the first sort of wave, um, and being just over halfway there, what's been your uh, favorite ascent, favorite descent, and why? Ooh, it's a that's uh, it's actually pretty tough. Um, I would say so far the Grand Teton was probably my favorite one um, just because it's like as classic of a, of a ski mountaineering ascent and descent as it gets. It kind of combines all the necessary skills you need to have as a ski mountaineer all in one. Um, it also happened to be on the mountain with Jimmy Chin, who's just a legend and a really good guy and incredibly just I mean, he's one of the best mountaineers in the world. And so being able to learn from him on kind of his home mountain was, was really, really special to me. Um, but just, it was a huge day. Um, you know, the climbing, ice climbing was really fun. And then just getting to the top of that peak is just, it's one of the more beautiful summits I've ever stood on top of. Um, and then it's funny that it is still a highlight to me because the skiing was absolutely God awful, like horrible the whole way down 7,000 vert of, completely horrible skiing but it was still like it was still kind of a cool day um but and i would also put it up there um in alaska when i did meteorite and pontoon with jeremy jones um those are, I mean, between Jimmy and Jeremy, like Jeremy's a mentor of mine and I've looked up to him for years and been able, lucky enough to ride with him over the years and just his, uh, his aspect, his approach, his way he um, um, kind of observes the mountains and moves through them is just so unique and he's so incredibly mountain intelligent and just being able to do a line like that where 
you know, quite often I felt like I was always just chasing Jeremy and was always just kind of like trying to, I was his second fiddle, just trying to like learn from him, his apprentice and to be kind of on, on the level and kind of unequal to him to trying to do a line that he'd been looking at for a long time felt really, really cool. And obviously just those two mountains are insane, incredibly steep, huge days. And uh, I mean, they kind of, those are two very, very special lines and special days. So those, those Alaska and the Grand Teton are probably the highlights so far. What's been the scariest moment in the project for you so far? Mm, scariest? Uh, luckily, we haven't had too many scary moments. Um, I think we've been very conservative in our decision making. Um, but I think the, the, the scariest thing was not a decision that I or Bjarne made um, the cinematographer for the project, but when someone else made when we were out in the backcountry um, in BC and on Joffrey Peak, when we witnessed a um, a guy fall down all of the central couloir, tumble about a thousand to two thousand vertical feet down a sixty degree couloir, bouncing off rocks and cliffs, and um, and going into rescue mode for him, that was probably the most terrifying. Just watching someone nearly die in front of our very eyes so that that was kind of like you know i know the realities and dangers of this i know it better than anybody but when you see it right in front of you you kind of like jesus like things go wrong it gets ugly real quick and i can we can certainly see that with you know in the episodes where you you, you know checking the snowpack and it's like nope not today this doesn't feel good this doesn't feel right that side of this the backcountry because I, I think now backcountry is becoming more and more popularist and it's a it's maybe a discipline that a lot of uh, sort of amateurs are moving into how important is it for you within what you're um, putting out there within the 50 project to really humanize the whole um, backcountry skiing sort of side of things because you know you're, you're obviously very accomplished ski pro and when we typically see you it's the polished edit you know skiing the crack and you know we don't see all the preparation that you talked about in terms of the going into a shoot like that so how important is it to you and and Bjarne to reflect that within the episodes that you're putting out there um it's i thought it was incredibly important because not for a reason that it was like this was the side of the, what i wanted to show but when i started to climb in ski lines that was what i found the most interesting was the fact that your work a week before the day before and the hours before you even uh, um, go up the decisions that you make a week before hour before day before all those decisions could be the difference between success and failure or disaster and success and uh it's one of those things where i found it just really interesting that there's this kind of there there's so much work and so much preparation that goes into uh climbing uh and skiing lines like that and so i just wanted to show that side of it and personally my favorite style of film and filming is that super raw real kind of moment i um documentaries that my it's funny he's a buddy now but my favorite documentary in the world is this one called cartel land um by matthew heineman and he his style of documentary filmmaking i thought is just some of the most brilliant filmmaking there is and so i kind of was really inspired by that kind of style of filmmaking to like let's bring this kind of style but on a 
a tenth of the budget and tenth of the skill of a director like that and bring it into just kind of trying to show what really goes into these days what's what i find interesting the 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 scouting the planning the the analyzation of the snowpack the decision making the critical decision making that goes on every foot that you take up on the mountain you're always observing you're always thinking so um you know when i set out to do the the video portion of the project like i set it out with a very explicit goal to i was like i want the audience to feel like they're on my shoulder going alongside me i want them to know what i'm thinking and go go through this adventure like they're on it with me i don't want to explain to them um what this adventure was like i want them to feel what it was like so from that you're able to show that like uh, a very humanized aspect of this all and i think it's been uh, you know one of these things that i didn't necessarily realize of how important that has been for people um you know because people do look at our polished films like an MSP film and they just see success and they don't see like, yeah, every day you're going through all this decision-making every line you're thinking about over and over you're, you're working your way up to these kind of uh, top tier lines. And, you know, there's not necessarily a reason to show that because it would just really take away from the film. But I found I could show that kind of stuff in this style of filmmaking and this style of storytelling. If I were to make, let's say, one movie about all 50 of the lines, you could never show that. But the fact that we're making uh, an episode for every single line, you really get the, the, the ability to kind of show all these different aspects of it. And so some of my goals inside of the, the creative side of it, when I, I, I'll come into the, that line or that day and try and be like, okay, what is the signature feature of this line and what is the signature kind of we could story we could tell with this and so is it sometimes it's avalanches sometimes it's like mapping sometimes it's decision making sometimes it's just suffering um in you know straight physical challenge sometimes exposure and so when we go into the filmmaking the days before it's like we try and think about like how are we going to capture that in the best possible way so um yeah, there's a lot of, uh, we, it's cool because we have a lot of freedom with the, this project and it's been allowing us to open up a lot of different uh, versions of storytelling through it. I think it's quite interesting that the first podcast episode that we uh, held was with Nat Siegel um, and mm -hmm. we talked about her film uh, with the sister Anna Finding the Line, which obviously Biane was the mm -hmm. uh, director of, of that film. And um, one of the subjects that we touched upon was just humanizing the fact that, yeah, as um, professional skiers, the audience typically does see you as, uh, you know, executing these lines and you don't necessarily get to see too much of the behind the scenes element so how much of an influence does Biane have within the project and how much do you guys kind of discuss uh, um, in the production room if you like uh, before you do an episode uh, or how and versus how much do you discuss sort of in the car on the way to a particular yeah. No, we we're discussing the days prior, uh, like we go through our whole kind of like, all right, what's the story that we think is going to happen? What is the, the angle on this line? What is, what are we going to show with it? So, you know, is it, um, bringing my wife Elise on kind of her first ski mountaineering trip. So we're going to 
just kind of focus on her and tell the try and tell that story uh, throughout this and try and and then we'll go through like what is going to be a, what kind of angles and what kind of storytelling and what are those moments that we need to capture to in order to to truly show um, that so no we are pretty much game planning every single episode and um, we don't really like write out a script or a shot list unless we necess really necessary um, some of the episodes we have but for the most part we are very very hands-on together okay i'm like all right we do this do that and we both bring kind of a lot of stuff to the table with um from it comes to ideas um and it you know the whole thing really lends itself this project to bjarne's strengths and bjarne is um an absolute mountain lover he's incredibly skilled in the mountains he's quite fearless when it comes out there but he's also really good with his decision making and the fact is like one of the most important skills of being a cameraman is getting your camera into the correct place and getting your camera into a correct place on a 55 degree slope um, with you know a thousand feet of exposure below you there's very few people in the world that can do that and do that comfortably and look down the barrel of a camera while you know potentially you know if you slip you're you're not coming back from that um so his skills when it comes to that are like kind of bar none there's very few people in the world that can do that and he he is really good at just being right alongside everyone being in the moment being that thing on your shoulder trying to bring the audience along for the ride and he races out in front of us gets the shot coming back comes back down films us from the side like he's just kind of always is like a he's like a fly buzzing around you with a camera all day and that really is one of his strengths and it lends itself to a really good creative story storytelling for for the project does that enable you to just sort of focus more upon the mountaineering side of it and the skiing side of it as opposed to, I guess, in, in comparison to maybe when you are on more of a stylized production, is a you know perhaps more waiting around on those types of things where you are setting up and establishing shots. Are, are you able to, I suppose, be more more in the adventure by doing something like the Fifty Project as opposed to you know the, the typical annual ski movies? Uh, unfortunately, probably not. I'm probably less in the adventure because of the fact that I'm like kind of this is my project and, you know, BRN are working together on the film, but it's still my baby and it's still kind of, we're working on the creative side of it a lot. So I'm, I, the number one priority is being safe and being successful out there. And so my mind is always going to be there. But then at the same time, I'm definitely quite often thinking, it was like, okay, what do I need to say to the camera right now to make sure the audience understands what is going on? Um, so stopping Bjarne and being like, hey, so like set up a shot, I have to say something. And doing that kind of stuff is is actually in my mind a lot. And then also thinking about those kind of like those moments of like, hey, I gotta hold up because you know this is a really good shot and we gotta do this. So in a certain way it's actually I live a little bit in three worlds. I'm living in the like world of being a skier and just trying to ski it, living in the world of being the guy in front of the camera and trying to say the right things to bring the audience along. And then three being living in the world of like a, a kind of a director and making sure that we're, we're capturing everything we need. So um, yeah, it's actually, I enjoy it though. I enjoy the challenge of that. Um, it doesn't say it necessarily takes me out of the adventure and it's, I, I don't have as pure of a experience with it. Um, it's just kind of, what you got to do in order to make these these episodes and these films uh so we're at episode 27 um the new season coming up 
is it possible to give any sort of a tease as to what's coming up uh, next or or is that still a bit too far away you're still waiting for the snow to fall no no we've got a we got a film coming out soon um so yeah i can slightly hint at you but let's say after the shutdown as things started to open back up um we sat out and made a film so um part of the 50 part of the lines of the 50 and we should be having a film dropping early november is what kind of we're forecasting it's currently we're working and editing it right now um it's gonna be it's gonna be a really good film um title of it right now is called the mountain why and um it's gonna involve a lot of suffering um, which people love to watch. Uh, there's a lot of humor involved with it because that's also fun. There's a lot of drama and uh, it should be, a, it, I'm really excited to show this film. It was a kind of a thing that I've never done before. I just threw myself into a challenge that was not just skiing these lines. It made, made skiing uh, some of these lines a lot harder than I should have. And uh, it, but that makes for a really good film. So, so yeah, the mountain, why it's coming out in this November. So, um, and then after that, yeah, then I have to wait for the snow to fall. So that's oh, definitely an intriguing tease. Yeah, uh, no, I think I don't want to say too much about it because I'm kind of trying to keep it a little under wraps because very few people know, know exactly what I did. Um, it was, well, I can tell it was Michelle Parker, who's a, a old friend of mine. And, um, I've known her since, God, it was like, she was like four years old here in Squaw. Um, her and I went on a big adventure together. Okay, we'll look, for, look forward to tuning in on your YouTube yeah. channel in November. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. And so, um, pro skier, adventurer, mountaineer, director, producer, so many hats and another hat that you wear is uh, as an entrepreneur as well yeah. um, with Arcade Belts, um, which I believe is uh, 10 years since you founded the business originally. And yeah. what was it that took you towards belts specifically and um and how how has the how have you managed to grow the business over the past decade alongside balancing your professional ski career um yeah so the to start yes we're pretty much in our 10 year anniversary right now i think it was 10 years ago i walked into a ski shop a local ski shop in the tahoe area with a few samples and showed it to him i was like you guys want to buy these <laughs> and and then sell them and uh they did and they did really well they sold out within we sold out our entire stock in seven weeks and hence arcade was born um the reason that started was mainly so my roommate at the time tristan queen who's now the ceo he and i were kind of just talking about business and talking about all kinds of random stuff and he was the one that came up with the idea of belts and it was just like right away like a bell I was like wait yeah why why do we put our leather belts why do we have all this specialized ski gear and then just take like belts out of our jeans and then put them on our, on our ski pants like they don't work that well like they're too tight or too loose get snow down your pants it was just like and they break down like every belt option out there kind of sucked so we were like wait a minute yeah like why does no one do this? And uh, you, you know, I mean, it was, it'd be funny that you buy a pair of like a $400 pair of snow pants and then they can't stay up because you have a, a, a cheap $35 belt that you took out of your, you know, leather belt that you took out of your jeans and put it in. So it was like, you're kind of failing at this. Um, and then from there, like, yeah, it started to be, uh, 
build and grow, uh, grow from there. Like I spent the first five years doing, wearing a lot of hats within the company, um, mainly on the marketing front, but right off and right in the beginning, I was selling, I was, I was driving to, to Washington, to Utah, walking into ski shops, trying to sell it. I had accounts and everything, just learning kind of every aspect of the business. Um, and then since the, since then, five years ago, I actually stepped down from uh, a day-to-day role in there, um, hired two people to kind of replace me and help grow the company. And um, now we're at 13 employees. Um, I remain kind of on the board. Um, I'm very involved on kind of a higher end level. Um, I'll help on some marketing projects and marketing consulting and whatnot. Um, And I'm talking to Tristan, the CEO, pretty much every other day um, about many different things. But for the most part, it's, uh, you know, the the way I was able to balance um, this kind of arcade success and my ski career success was by stepping out of arcade, <laughs> letting it, letting the people that could run it well, um, run it. And it's done very well. And I'm, I'm, it's really cool to see, you know, to see that like now we're 10 years in, we have 13 employees. Um, we've got an office, a, a good, a good company that supports our community and is doing well within the industry. And, you know, it's like nothing, it's not like this skyrocketing crazy company, but we're just, we're just doing well and we have good employees and we're continuing to grow and uh, enjoying the process. And what's been your proudest moment in business to date? Ah, proudest moment. I don't know. Like business to me is interesting. Like I find that like little and small challenges to be really interesting, but it's like, you know, like growing a company is, is there's nothing like super like monumental. You don't go through these, like you don't get to step on an awards show and be like, yeah, best company and whatnot. And if you do, they're generally kind of like fluffy pieces from some trade industry that it's you're greasing the wheels. So it's something's kind of weird, but, um, you know, for me, I would say it's the fact that like, we still have our first hire from year four still working for us. Um, we, which to me shows that, you know, we've built a company that is fun to work at. That is, uh, a, placed in a community that is great to live in. Um, you know, we've had the opportunity to move the company to places where we could find better candidates, have cheaper office rentals, have just a better business environment, let's say. And we, we don't want to do that because the original reason of starting the company is like, we, we all moved to Tahoe for one reason and that's been skiing and outdoors and, uh, but you know, job opportunities are slim. So let's like, let's build our own company and keep it here. And so the fact that we've been able to keep it here, have good people to work there, have people that have stayed there for the, you know, since they've been hired um, to me shows that like, Hey, we've got a, a, a good company and a good company to work for and supporting the community. Um, those kind of things. I think, I think it's having the employees and like, sometimes I sit there and realize I'm like, wow, like people are paying for, like their children's schooling and for their rent and their mortgages and their food by this company and this idea that we built. And I feel kind of quite often when you're making decisions more indebted to them than to our own success and the business success. Cause you're like, I don't want to make a mistake and force that person to like have to find another job or be insecure with their healthcare and, you know, paying their mortgage and stuff like that. So I would probably say it's that the fact that we have, good employees and are built something that can support some some jobs in our community fantastic 
Um, well, thanks so much for having the time to talk today and helping us close uh-huh. out season one of our adventure podcast. Um, no the final question is if, if people want to find out more and stay tuned to uh, uh, Cody Townsend's world and check out the upcoming episodes of the 50 Project, uh, where can people find you? Um, pretty much on all social medias. I'm at, at Cody Townsend. So, at, um, so that Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even though I don't, I never go on Facebook, so I don't go, don't go on Facebook. <laughs> um, but, um, and then for the YouTube, uh, pretty much the best way to just search it is either search my name on YouTube or search the 50 on YouTube. And it's the first thing that pops up. Um, the channel is, uh, YouTube slash Cody Townsend slash C, but, um, search the 50 and you get to get to watch the series and hopefully get hooked on it and hopefully not binge watch it in one night, but hopefully you binge watch it over a couple nights. Cause there's, there's a lot of good content up there. Mm-hmm.